Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I've been exploring the films of Guillermo del Toro, as recommended by Sean Meehan, and in this week's episode, the last episode of the month, I will be discussing Guillermo del Toro's 1990s debut feature film Kronos. Um, that's right, it is the last week of September, which means it is the last week of Guillermo del Toro month. I'm sad, I'm sure you're sad, this has been a lot of fun, uh, but all good things must come to an end, and <clears throat> they are coming to an end. Um, in my opinion, a little bit of a low note. Um, I appreciate the approach that Sean took with the recommendations, um, or at least in the, the order of the recommendations, kind of um, seeing Guillermo del Toro at his best in two different forms, um, how, you know, sort of what he would ultimately become, sort of uh, seeing him at, at his best, what he is fully capable of, and then kind of stepping back and seeing uh, where that all began, seeing uh, the the early plantings of the seeds that would eventually sprout into the... Uh, Oscar-winning and much-beloved filmmaker uh, that we know of as Guillermo del Toro, and certainly when you uh, that idea of when you say a Guillermo del Toro film, sort of what you begin to think of, things that you see in your mind or things that tug on your heartstrings. You know, it, it was a, a real fun journey to kind of see uh, what he is what he became and then to kind of wrap it up here in chronos to kind of see where that all began it's been a lot of fun but i also have to say that in terms of this month and these three recommendations chronos was to me uh by far sort of the i hate to say weakest because this was his first film <laughs> and he was what 27 28 years old um that was me six years ago with the exception of having made a feature film that uh swept the Mexican uh, equivalent of the Oscars and then won uh, a top prize at the Cannes Film Festival. So I don't want to be too hard on the guy. I don't want to be too hard on this film. But certainly uh, I I didn't respond to Kronos the same way that I did, not even nearly the same way that I did to uh, Devil's Backbone or Crimson Peak. Um, but it was, like I said, uh, fun to see where everything started for this filmmaker and 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 that that is on a both a superficial level and on a level which is a bit more profound the superficial level obviously maybe not obviously but the superficial level being uh his future collaborators you know this is the beginning of Guillermo del Toro's relationship with Ron Perlman who in this film played Angel de la Guardia but would later go on obviously to play Hellboy in the Hellboy movies um Federico Lupe who in this uh is the, the our lead, uh, Jesus Greece, um, who would also, uh, as you recall, be in The Devil's Backbone as well, uh, the doctor who is kind of overseeing the orphanage, kind of the head of the orphanage, and then he would make an appearance in Pan's Labyrinth in 2006 as well. And then um, one of the, well, I don't want to say one of the most um, famous or rewarding because... Uh, Del Toro's relationship was, with Ron Perlman was certainly one that was uh, mutually beneficial and uh, 
uh, for the both of them, but uh, this was the first time that Del Toro worked with DP Guillermo Navarro as well, who would, uh, with the exception of Mimic, become the DP on every Del Toro film up into Crimson Peak, in which D uh, Del Toro once again teamed with Dan Lauston, uh, who shot Mimic, and then who would uh, obviously go on to uh, shoot the Shape of Water and get an Oscar nomination for that one as well. So this is where it all started for this guy. This is where he steps on the scene and declares himself as like, this is who I am, this is my voice, and these are the people who are going to help kind of bring this to fruition to me. And that's really fun. Um, and then, of course, beyond the superficial stuff, there's also the the deeper, the more profound elements, the the thematic and stylistic elements that we see become regular fixtures of a Guillermo del Toro film. We see them for the first time here, and while they're a little clunky, uh, they're also pretty cool to kind of see uh, where it all started. And and in terms of the, the stylistic or thematic things, which I think, you know, they're all kind of tied into each other, the themes and the style, how he sort of uses style and visuals to supplement or draw out or, or draw attention to his themes. Um, the the two biggest things I see in this uh, are and we and I'll go through them both you know uh, in a bit uh, in detail but it's sort of the steampunk elements and also this idea of monsters as more human than human basically those are the two biggest things that I see here that he would continuously go back to to kind of uh, help. Uh, parallel and enhance each other. I mean, this is where it all started because this is his his debut feature, obviously. And I want to talk about the steampunk stuff first because that is the that's the stuff that uh, at least catches your eye first and foremost. You know, because the the movie is entitled Chronos, based on this Chronos device, which is sort of typifying of that style that Guillermo del Toro uh, would use. Um, and and, and I think it well. It might be a little bit unfair to um, call Del Toro a steampunk filmmaker or label some of the elements in his film explicitly steampunk, but there certainly is that idea uh, that you see in steampunk of antiquity um, meeting technology, and you see that once again, like I said, in the Kronos device itself. Um, it's this this uh, strange, very sophisticated device with. Uh, these internal gears, this like, and these internal machinations, which we often see in, in close-up shots, uh, which is also powered by uh, uh, a very old, ancient, organic thing in this blood-sucking bug. Um, it, it, it as a physical uh, device, uh, prop, item, whatever you want to call it, sort of typifies uh, these larger themes. Uh, the, this idea of sort of. Um, moving ahead chronologically uh, in time, in development, in civilization, culture, whatever you want to call it, moving ahead chronologically while being stuck uh, in the current um, temporality. Um, let's kind of look at the context uh, in, in the sense of this, uh, Del Toro was not just uh, raised, but this film is also set in the uh, Mexican city of Guadalajara. And uh, Guadalajara is a, a, a very old city. It, it was founded in, I believe, um, 1450 or 1542, sorry. Um, and I, I don't know if it moved around or Guadalajara was the name of a few different places, but uh, before it kind of settled on the geographic location where it is now. But Guadalajara, the name, the village, which would ultimately turn into the city of Guadalajara, was founded in, in 1542. Um, and you see that 
old antiquity, uh, very much on display in this movie um, with the old architecture, the uh, not just the business that uh, Jesus works in, uh, but the the streets and and the and this this just like kind of beautiful antiquated architecture um, is there, and yet uh, with how old Guadalajara is, um, it eventually became um, or it is now, and I have to imagine was pretty close to being there in 1993 when this film was made. Um, the second most populous and densely populated metropolitan area in Mexico. So you have this idea of this old city, which is which has moved into the future, which has developed, which has um, this dual identity of being a very modern city with also that core or that soul of being something ancient. Um, it should also be noted that Guadalajara, one of its uh, one of the biggest uh, stones, backbones, whatever you want to call it, or, uh, of its economy is information technology. That's incredibly modern. I think that's very fun. Um, and whether or not that is something that did, uh, Del Toro intended, um, that's certainly, I guess, up for debate. I personally believe, as being a very intelligent filmmaker, that was something that he brought to it. Um, it sort of does contextually, geographically, all tie uh, together or is all sort of related to each other in some way. Um, I think it's also interesting to note that our protagonist of this film, Jesus, um, is an antiquities dealer. He doesn't just work in uh, a physical establishment, which is uh, very old, but he also deals in the buying and selling of old ancient artifacts. And the uh, antagonist of the, of this film, as as played by or as typified in the uh, De La Guardia, um, family, you know, the, the uncle and then Ron Perlman being Angel de la Guardia, uh, they are working in industry. I don't think it's ever really specified as to what they do, but they seem to work and live above uh, a factory. And you have this idea of industry at the heart of this ancient city, um, almost in a way sort of being a corrupting force. Um, uh, I, I, there's a, a great quote from uh, Roger Ebert's review of Kronos, um, and Roger Ebert was one of the first American film critics to really champion this film and sort of bring it into the uh, mainstream mindset. Uh, I'm sorry, mainstream attention, not mindset. But he has this uh, this great quote from his review that says, uh, the typical immortal is not a young and cheerful person who wishes to spend eternity doing good, but an old embittered miser who wants to live long enough to see compound interest make him a billionaire. Um, it is this idea that industry is corrupting, that industry is the negative antagonistic force within this city, uh, within this spirit, uh, which within this larger worldview, which is something that I think we've seen in The Devil's Backbone. I mean, while it's not industry specifically, you can certainly make the argument that the gears of war, the bomb in the courtyard, and the, and the airplane sort of represent that. You see that in Crimson Peak with the color palette and how he shoots Buffalo versus how he shoots the actual Crimson Peak location. And then you have it here where it's, is, it is this old curmudgeon bastard who wants the Kronos device to live forever so that he can kind of continue being this tight-fisted, awful billionaire. And even when he dies, or uh, Ron Perlman's character is celebratory, and he's saying, yes, 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 it's mine, I'm rich, and he's celebrating that he is going to be inheriting this fortune. The 
And, and, and now that I'm thinking about it, too, even, uh, you know, Hellboy, it, it doesn't matter. I don't want to dwell too much in, in past films. The, the point is that this idea that industry is corrupting, that uh, is, is a recurring theme in Guillermo del Toro's films, and we see the, the heart of it here. And I think that's super interesting um, because that is certainly something that you will see um, – <clears throat> with the exception of Pan's Labyrinth, I don't think you can really say that Guillermo del Toro makes straight-up fairy tales, but there are fairy tale elements to his films. And that is something which is sort of a <clears throat> trademark in fairy tales. This is the idea of sort of simplicity, of this idea of the idyllic livelihood of sort of living away off the grid, away from the mainstream, um, and <clears throat> Del Toro certainly has that attitude of embracing people, spirits, identities, things which are away from the mainstream. Um, and I believe that does start with this idea of business and industry sort of being this corrupting force. Um, even though the, the Kronos device makes people live forever, um, it makes them live forever at the cost of their immortal soul. It turns them into literal vampires. So they can live forever, but they have to give up something of themselves. Sounds a little bit like how some people complain about uh, working in the corporate world. Sure, I'm making a lot of money, but where's my soul? Where's my creativity? Where's that, that fire, that spirit that's inside of me? I had to give that up in order to achieve this financial success. There are certainly parallels there, and I think that's very interesting. Um, and, and so that, that idea of, of turning into a monster sort of then ties into obviously the second really profound thing or, or, or deep uh, theme that Del Toro likes to explore is this idea of how we relate to monsters. Um, that is the case in this movie, not just because the monster was at first a person. Um, Jesus, when we are first introduced to him, he's got, uh, you know, he's got color in his cheeks. He is very much breathing oxygen and uh, eating regular food instead of consuming blood. He is a living human being, and he's a living human being who runs a business, who loves his wife, who loves his granddaughter, who um, is this fully fleshed three-dimensional person uh, who eventually does turn into a monster. So it's not just that we sort of see Abe Sapien or Hellboy or the Amphibian Man or the spirits in... Uh, in Crimson Peak, um, it's not just that we see them and they and they have some type of characteristic about them which makes them seem more human than human. In this, it is a human who transforms into the monster. We are not meeting this person after the transformation. We are seeing them go through the transformation. So they're not just the monster. They are human. It's not just that, but it's also the fact that his transformation is an unwilling transformation. He does not choose to become a vampire. He does not choose to want to uh, crawl around on bathroom floors and lick up blood that has been dripping from someone's um, profusely bleeding dry nose. It happens accidentally. He's just playing with a Kronos device, and it just sort of happens that he activates it, and all of a sudden he is set on this path of turning into a monster. He is a reluctant monster. He is um, a monster that, despite turning into a vampire, still has kind of a soul. Uh, <clears throat> I, it could be argued that it is a soul. And now I'm just, I'm just now thinking of uh, my girlfriend and I are going through Buffy the Vampire Slayer and this idea of uh, if vampires have souls is a recurring theme, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and, and, and what's interesting is also this idea of how um, that 
creature that he's turning into, how that stands as a juxtaposition to the religious culture, which is not explicit in this movie, but certainly is a factor. Uh, Mexico is a very Catholic country. Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro was raised a Catholic. He considers himself a, a lapsed Catholic. And uh, while the only instance of sort of uh, well, I guess there's two real instances of sort of uh, religious iconography in this. You have certainly the the angel statues, which the the people are, uh, the bad guys are trying to procure uh, in order to find the Kronos device, and then also you have that nighttime scene in which uh, it, it's almost sort of like a scene of, of of someone who's addicted feeding his addiction, where. Um, uh, Jesus is, is sort of jonesing for it. He's sweating. He can't sleep. He's itching his hand, and he finally unleashes that Kronos device into his hand, and like it hurts, but he's also sort of relieved for it. And right before he does that, or even before he does it, and as it is working on him, he's saying the Lord's Prayer, and it's sort of it's sort of this idea of um, Lord, forgive me for what I'm going to do. There, there's this idea of the guilt sort of hanging over him um, that is very much a Catholic thing. Um, and once again, I have to reference Ebert's review. It's this idea of sort of um, if you have uh, a very religious uh, society or environment in which is sort of your, 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 what you're striving for is this, uh, this goal of eternity, of, of meeting your final reward in heaven, then how dark of a juxtaposition or how sinful is it in order to, or not in order to, but to sort of postpone that to fight that off i mean uh vampire mythology is is older than well most countries um and tied into vampire mythology is this sort of uh juxtaposition that sets it up as a spiritual uh nemesis a completely dichotomous or or not dichotomous but juxtapose i guess to the goodness of religion, even in movies and TV shows such as, once again, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, in which they don't really get into anything that has to do with Christian mythology or lore. That's what I'm saying now is only having just started season four. Please don't spoil anything for me. Um, the cross is still a significant piece of iconography to ward off this evil, these soulless beasts that are vampires. Um, and so that adds further complications to this man, this idea of, of you have to imagine this character sort of thinking, what is going to become of my eternal soul when I have become this thing, this mockery of, of the resurrection of my risen Lord? Uh, yeah, there is a scene where Jesus literally rises from the dead. You know, we think he's dead after the car accident, quote-unquote car accident, and yet he is not dead, you know, and he has to be thinking, what is going to become of me after I've died, really died, what's going to happen to my eternal soul? And I find that to be um, incredibly interesting. Um, and it's also through this, uh, through this temptation, I guess, the temptation for blood, that we do also see the, uh, the first instances, the early instances of how Del Toro will use red uh, and that side of the color spectrum to sort of signify something which is, <laughs> I couldn't really think of a good word for it, so I'm just going to say badness. <laughs> I mean, you have, once again, the opening shot of the Devil's Backbone in which the bombs are dropping, and it's the orange which signifies, you know, the the real awfulness of the explosions. And in Crimson Peak, you have the red ghosts who are signifying the evil, um, nefarious, tainted nature 
of that family. And then here you have Red as a sort of like obviously the blood being the temptation, the thing which is luring our protagonist away from being from goodness. Um, and it's also interesting is how the red and the blue kind of play off each other because the red is sort of becomes almost this sort of visually appealing color. Uh, our, eye are sort of, our eyes are sort of drawn to whatever might be red, whether it's the meat in the refrigerator or whether it's the blood on the bathroom floor. Our eyes are drawn to that as he as a character becomes more pale, more blue. As he begins to lose more color, the red becomes almost more sumptuous to us, just as you have to imagine it would probably appear to be more sumptuous to Jesus. Um, it's also interesting to note that the two characters, are, our two main characters, Jesus Gris and Angel de, uh, Angel de, de la Guardia, sorry for my Spanish mispronunciations, everybody, um, their names translate to uh, Jesus Gris is uh, Grey Jesus. Um, once again, this idea of sort of the, the mockery or the bastardization of Jesus, somebody who is very much raised from the dead, but in a <laughs> tainted sort of nature. And then uh, Angel de la Guardia translates to guardian angel, and he is the one uh, Ron Perlman is looking out for his uncle. He is the one that is, you know, doing everything for his uncle. So once again, you have these spiritual themes which Guillermo del Toro is playing with, which I find to be super fascinating. Having said all that, this film doesn't still really work for me. Um, parts of it certainly do, but overall it doesn't really. Uh, and this is going to sound incredibly snooty, I guess, but Kronos does kind of suffer from its low budget. I mean, it, it was, uh, I believe it was only about $2 million um, to uh, produce, which is certainly not much at all. Um, but it does really, you see it. I mean, have you ever watched a movie like, um, I don't know, maybe let's say Heaven's Gate, which uh, maybe some of you haven't seen. But there, there are definitely some movies that you've seen where you kind of, you're watching and you're in all of it and you're thinking the money is on the screen like you know it has a big you know it had a huge budget and so where are you seeing it you're seeing it right there you know where all the money is going and I, and I guess I bring up Heaven's Gate because these days these huge budget movies like Avengers uh, and uh, the Justice League not to sound too commercial but a lot of that is sort of of course it's on the screen because a lot of that is digitally created so you can get elaborate and you can get very fancy um but something like, uh, you know, the Hellboy movies, uh, maybe Hellboy 2, which was uh, a lot more uh, elaborate and had a bigger budget than certainly Hellboy did. And you kind of see it on the screen. You see where the money is going, especially in Hellboy 2. You see it in the troll market sequence. You say, OK, I know that this money had uh, or I know that this movie had a certain amount of budget. And there it is. It's not just going to actors salaries. It's going to. The production design, it's going to the costumes, it's going to the makeup, it's going to the special effects. You you see it up there on the screen. Kronos is sort of the opposite of that. You see that there was no money to put up on the screen. And that begins with, um, blasphemous as this might be, the cinematography. Um, Guillermo Navarro is a very talented cinematographer. I mean, even if you didn't have all the stuff he did for Del Toro, including his Oscar win for Pan's Labyrinth, which... It is amazing. I still, in my mind, Emmanuel Lubezki for Children of Men. That should have been his, but, you know, then that guy ended up winning, what, three in a row? So it's fine. He's <laughs> he's, he's uh, sleeping fine at night, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, on top of all that stuff, he also um, shot Jackie Brown for Quentin Tarantino in 1997, which had that wonderful sort of um, 
vintage 1970s feel to it. Guillermo, Toro, or Guillermo Novaro is a talented cinematographer. Um, but there's only so much you can do with so much budget. And the aesthetic of Kronos very much kind of, it looks sort of like a TV movie. Um, not in the sense of how it's cut together or anything like that, but just when you look at it, you kind of see like this looks almost sort of soap opery. Um, and once again, I'm, I'm talking just the superficial aesthetic. I'm not talking about performances or anything like that. But you just sort of look at it and you think like, mm, this this doesn't look like Hellboy. This doesn't look like Devil's Backbone. This doesn't look like any Del Toro film I will see. Um, and that in itself is not necessarily a problem. I'm not going to knock a film for having a low budget because, you know, Lord knows. Actually, now that I think about it, reading up on it, the, the film was actually only budgeted at, at like a million and a half. And Del Toro had to take out a loan to finish the rest of it. Um, turned out to pay off. Obviously, like I said, swept the, uh, the, the equivalent of the Mexican Oscars and won top prize at the Cannes Film Festival. So clearly it paid off. Somebody saw something in this. Um, so I'm not going to knock a film for having a low budget. Um, but when you have a low budget, when you have a film which sort of um, looks like this one does, it's sort of the warts and all thing. And so some of the flaws become a little bit more flawed. You kind of see some of the warts a bit stronger. Um, and... <clears throat> The warts in this movie, I think, are really sort of Guillermo del Toro not yet being able to balance different tones within the same film. Um, his films <clears throat> always have some form of whimsy to them. Certainly, once again, I, I keep going back to the Hellboy movies because maybe it's just his collaboration with Ron Perlman. But there are funny moments in that film. In those films, there are amusing moments. There are even sort of, you could say, absurd moments in those films. And yet, <clears throat> I don't think, um, well, I, no, I, I guess there are moments that kind of go sh into straight-up comedy, but I think those are the least effective moments. Um, in Hellboy 2, you have that sequence where Hellboy and Abe Sapien are getting drunk and they're singing along to Barry Manilow, and that is comedic, and that's fine. I just don't think it has any place in that movie. It's sort of... Um, when it, when it's unbridled Del Toro, sort of you know, kind of uh, taking the whimsy into an extreme comedic direction, I don't think it works. I think it takes away from the movie. And in this one, he hadn't yet really learned to balance the whimsy with the drama, and, it, and instead the the film kind of fluctuates between dramatic and between comedic in ways that I don't think uh, make sense, or at least can be very distracting. And, and, and two things in particular I'm thinking of are first and foremost. Um, Ron Perlman's obsession with getting plastic surgery is very strange. And I guess, <clears throat> I guess in a way it sort of makes him a little bit more of a complicated character. He's not so one dimensional. I mean, he dislikes his uncle just as, just as much as we dislike his uncle. Um, and yet it's, it feels a little bit weird to sort of relate to that person when really he, we were not we don't want to be related to him. He is the antagonist as well. That, that seems very strange. And it, it adds a, it adds a comical element, even when he first is introduced to Aurora and, um, uh, Jesus, he, he's, he's playing with her, you know, he's kind of doing the hide and seek thing and, you know, giving her the gum and like, that's, it's a playful moment and it sort of sets an expectation for how this guy is going to, going to be, 
that I think sort of goes off the rails with his obsession with wanting to get a new nose and listening to the tape later on and reading the pamphlet of plastic surgery and you, it seems very strange and I don't think it really works and sort of undermines Angel's uh, menace to a certain degree. He actually kind of becomes less menacing because he's kind of bumbling. Uh, it doesn't seem like he's very good at being a bad guy. I mean, yes, he does succeed in killing Jesus at one point, but he also gets his nose broken a couple times um, in various circumstances. He, he just he's kind of bumbling and, and comical, and I don't I don't really think it's very effective. And then um, also we have the uh, the cremation sequence, or what's supposed to be the cremation sequence, in which we spend a little bit too much time um, with this... Uh, I, I don't know the term, but the guy who's, who's, uh, who's uh, you know, supposed to be sewing up the lips and, and applying the makeup over Jesus' dead body, um, we spend a little bit too much time on him and the pride that he takes in his work and how... Um, uh, it ultimately is fruitless because they're just going to cremate the person anyway. I mean, it, it sort of adds a, some agency and significance to that character, which isn't entirely necessary. I mean, we think that he's going to be someone significant after that sequence, and he's really not. Uh, now, what I will say is that it does add a um, kind of a cool little not even jump scare, but sort of uh, just the way that we sort of leave, uh, you know, he leaves the coffin there when he comes back, the lid is up, and it's sort of the the subtle signifier of Jesus rising again. Um, that's It's a really cool sequence, but his character is sort of, why why is so much importance being put on, on this character? It seems kind of strange, and I think it is just Del Toro still trying to figure out, like, how how can we make this not dour? How can we add some lightheartedness to it? And I don't think it's entirely successful. Um, I, I will say that um, I remember when I first saw this movie years ago, I found it sort of weird that Ron Perlman's Spanish was bad and that his accent was bad, um, and that is very much on purpose. Um, I, I believe that Del Toro is doing it uh, on purpose as sort of as a bit of a... Um, response to American films, which have sort of, which have sort of uh, cast uh, or portrayed Mexicans as very stereotypical. So when he makes his Mexican film, he uh, has these American characters, which are very ignorant and dumb, and I think that that's kind of fun. Uh, but at the same time, um, like I said, by making Angel sort of bumbling and obsessed with his physical appearance, it. Hmm. It sort of undermines, like I said, the menace already. And, and I guess a, a parallel could be drawn between the living Angel sort of wanting to alter his physical appearance and, you know, parallel that with, uh, or maybe the foil with Jesus's uh, physical degradation. There, there's something there, I suppose, but uh, thematically it's fine, but in terms of a superficial thing, the, as a character and as a menace, he's not, he's not working out uh, so well for me. Um, and, and I, I'd be remiss if I did not mention uh, the the sequence in the bathroom in which Jesus does uh, finally give in to his literal bloodlust, um, which is all done. It's mostly a one shot. There is a one cut in there, but it is uh, you do see at least there. Um, hey, 
this is a guy who is going to make visually very unique and interesting things. And I think that that's uh, so cool. Um, and, oh, one thing I forgot to mention, too, um, uh, from my earlier talk about this idea of moving forward chronologically while being stuck in the current temporality, um, it's also interesting to note that uh, while this film came out in 1993, it takes place in 1997, uh, which means it was Del Toro was already sort of looking ahead toward the future, which I find very interesting. So, uh, yeah, an, uh, an interesting movie and certainly something that I'm glad I watched within the context of this greater theme and of, of in the context of the canon of Guillermo del Toro, um, but not uh, not my favorite del Toro film. And, in fact, one that, uh, I don't know, not, not too eager to, uh, to revisit in the future, but certainly if you appreciate it, um, that's awesome. Uh, and if you do appreciate it, it's certainly more than I did, I wanna I wanna hear from you um, about it. So, um, oh, before I get into that sort of stuff, the self plugs and how to reach me. If you want to watch Kronos and haven't before, once again, if you haven't, why are you listening to this episode? But if you want to watch it or you want to rewatch it, um, if you are fortunate enough to have subscriptions to either Canopy, that's spelled with a K, or Filmstruck. Uh, you have access to it uh, for free. Um, if you do not have subscriptions to either of those, the best way for uh, any of us to get it is to rent it through Amazon, um, Google Play, iTunes, uh, and YouTube, uh, all of those platforms where you can purchase or rent. But uh, yeah, if you have Canopy or if you have Filmstruck, it's right there for you. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't, like I said, not a huge fan of Kronos. Um, but if you are a huge fan of Kronos, I want to hear from you and I want to know why. So that's easy enough to do. You can shoot me an email at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Nolan Fixes Teeth. Uh, feel free to um, comment uh, on this episode on you know either the I Do Movies Badly Facebook page or you can go to Battleship Retention in the podcast drop down menu. Um, you can find I Do Movies Badly and you can feel free to leave comments there as many of you do and I appreciate those comments as well. Um, and also feel free to just catch up on back episodes. Maybe you missed the episode on Devil's Backbone. Maybe you missed the episode on Crimson Peak. You can do that at idomoviesbadly.podbean.com. You can do that on the iTunes store. Or you can do that in the aforementioned Battleship Pretension. So that does it for Gamma Lotoro Month. Um, I don't know about you folks out there, but I think uh, I think my first month back from my hiatus was a, was a good one. I, I, feel, I feel good about this. I feel good about... Uh, moving ahead now there are still some there's still some rust I have to shake off some gears I have to keep on moving for instance um, looking ahead and trying to book future guests still have not done that so um, I don't have something set for October just yet I don't have a guest confirmed I don't have a theme confirmed but I have irons in the fire so I'm working on that and so because October is not a little bit longer but how the calendar certainly shapes up I have a, a few more a little bit more time to play with. I'm going to take uh, next week off, uh, but please do pay attention to the Facebook page uh, for I Do Movies Badly, um, in which I will be, uh, once I book my next guest, I will be announcing who it is and what filmmaker we will be talking about. So, um, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for listening to this episode. Thanks for getting back on board with this journey of me kind of revisiting this podcast of me putting myself back out there as a largely ignorant and often stuttering uh, film enthusiast who is trying to educate himself um, in some of the best, uh, most significant films and filmmakers out there. So, um, 
be sure to tune in, not next week, but in two weeks from now, maybe next week, uh, dig back through the I Do Movies Badly Back catalog, catch up on some other filmmakers and guests that are out there. Um, there's Gavin Mevius, who's talking to me about the films of Juan Carwai. You can uh, listen to James McCormick talking about David Cronenberg, maybe Jenny Miller talking about Andrea Arnold, maybe Kristen Sales talking about uh, female film noir. Uh, there's, there's plenty of stuff out there um, to get caught back, uh, to get caught up on if you are just joining us for the first time or rejoining after a long hiatus. So don't tune in next week. Tune in to some old stuff next week, but tune in in two weeks where I'll be talking to a new guest about a new filmmaker, and well, hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.